few minutes, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 this morning of Nehemiah 9, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. I wonder this morning how much you've thought or given thought um, about worship. So often when we think of worship, we uh, think of music, but worship goes far beyond the music. Last week I'd mentioned that worship is an outward expression of an inward affection, saying that often we worship what we love. And at its core, worship is describing worth to something. It comes from the old English, which is indeed worth-ship. And it originally was the action of human beings and expressing homage to God because he's worthy of it. It's an expression of reverence and adoration of God. Worship is a human response to a gracious God. Jonathan Edwards said this, If man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It is impossible it should be otherwise. Something will have the heart of man, and that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. When it comes to worship, here's what we must understand. First, that it is God's prerogative alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach Him in worship. In other words, He is God and we are not. That is to say that if God were to decree that He was only to be worshipped by people wearing black pants, He would have every right to do so. It is arrogance on man's part to think that we determine how God will be worshipped because we do not determine it. Secondly, when we bring extra biblical practices into our worship, it nullifies and undermines God's appointed worship. This is actually seen in many churches today who so crowd their worship time with extra-biblical practices that little time is left for the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. Thirdly, the wisdom of Christ and the sufficiency of Scripture are called into question when we add unappointed elements into our worship. And fourthly, the Bible condemns all worship that is not commanded by God. That is, speaking of the substance and the parts of worship, not of the circumstances of worship. There are certain minor circumstantial details that God has left to be determined by the light of nature in which Christian prudence and general rules of Scripture must be our guide. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have two, two rules of worship, edification and order. God demands these rules to be followed, but... Um, has not given us a detailed list of what it means in every situation. So churches have a free, or are free to draw a line between circumstances and substance and parts as long as they hold to a view that does not violate how God has declared he is to be worshipped or add some sort of extra biblical practice to their worship. So one might ask, if God has been so clear in how he wants to be worshipped 
then why is it that we as people are so often so lenient when it comes to worship? And I would suggest this. That is because the God of modernity is not a God to be feared. Might I say that we take time to pray and ask the Lord to teach us to worship Him in an acceptable way. That today, in this message, perhaps we will learn some things when it comes to worship of an Almighty God. And with that said, if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for the Word of God as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua and Bani and Kadmiel and Shabaniah and Buni and Sherebiah and Bani and Chenaniah, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua and Kadmiel and Bani and Hashabaniah and Sherebiah and Hodiah and Shebaniah and Pathahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise let us pray father thank you for your word may it penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning may you speak to us about worship speak to our hearts for your servants listen May we be obedient to what we hear. May we worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this section of Nehemiah gives us an idea of what happened when revival, or as we talked about last week, biblical renewal comes. The people have received the word of God, and where the word is received and honored, God's word will bear fruit. And so after the Feast of Tabernacles, which included eight days of reading and preaching from God's word, the Israelites were much different people than they were at the beginning of chapter 8. Their hearts have been saturated with God's word and it has accomplished a great work in their lives and the revival brought great joy and gladness. Additionally, it caused them to seek a sincere and more intimate relationship with the Lord. And so we see in these verses that which is acceptable worship and that God is indeed worthy of worship. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that we worship with sincerity worship with authentic sincerity the israelite people had an authentic sincerity worship must be sincere or it's not true worship if the thoughts and the intents and the focus of our heart is not on god and what we're doing 
then we're not sincere. Have you ever sung a song and just not thought about it? Or have you ever put money in the offering plate and you don't think about it? Have you ever listened to a sermon and you let your mind wander all over the place? Or maybe you take a nap or whatever it might be. You see, what I believe the scripture teaches us is that attitude is not sincerity. Why is that not being sincere? Well, because our hearts are actually elsewhere. Like when you're talking to someone and you know they're not paying attention to anything that you're saying. In fact, you know that they're thinking about something else. Do you really want to continue to talk with that person? No. Yet we do that with God on a regular basis. All through the Bible, we learn that God is to be praised and blessed and glorified and feared and exalted. He is to be celebrated and thanked and rejoiced. Why? Because He's God and He's worthy of all that. He is to have all the affections of our heart. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, Psalm 29.2 says. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Psalm 95, 6 says. God is the object of our worship. Webster defines worship as meaning to adore, to pay divine honor to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. Biblical worship is all about God. Not about us. And far too often, people attend church and they ask this question, what's in it for me? And as believers, we need to turn that question around and make it all about God. Sincerity in our worship is a must. If we refuse to be sincere, then it fails to be true. The Israelites had learned through God's word about the greatness of God and what he expected from them. There are three things that we notice about the Israelites right here in verse 1. First, their continuation. We notice their continuation. The Feast of Tabernacles would have concluded on the 22nd day, and so they've had, a, uh, had all these days of preaching, seven of them in fact, and then probably in that other day they're, they're reading God's word. And what is their response? To assemble again. So those who assembled were doing it by a deliberate choice. Furthermore, let's remember that they first felt conviction to deal with their sin on the very first day of the month. But they were not able to deal with it because they had to take care of what the law of God required. So now here it is 23 days later and they're going to deal with their sin. They were committed to God's word. Nowadays in some churches, if the preacher goes over his allotted time, he has a mass exodus on his hands. I must admit, I still find it baffling how people can sit through a three-hour movie without a problem, but they can't handle 50 minutes from God's word. And I think I figured it out. I think I really figured it out. The movie has popcorn and candy, and the goal of the movie is to entertain. And perhaps that's why so many churches have gone the route of entertainment. The people of Nehemiah's day were not hungry for entertainment. They were hungry for the Word of God. Do you hunger for the Word of God this morning? 
Do you hunger for it? Do you, I just can't wait to get into God's word. Some of you might be thinking, I just can't wait to see what's going to come out of pastor's mouth next. But um, do you hunger for God's word? Let's also notice this, their consecration. Their consecration. Notice how they assembled. It was with fasting. And fasting was an indication that God was at work in the hearts of the people. It had this consecrating effect on the believer. Fasting is almost a forgotten practice among believers today. However, it's a biblical practice that God has chosen for his people. Fasting allows us to break from earthly things and draw closer to God. In fact, that is what God's word says. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke in Isaiah 58, 6. First notice that fasting is chosen by God. God wants his people to break from worldly things and sometimes even necessary things like food and draw close to him. When it speaks of these bonds, it's like being in chains and the picture is being enslaved to wickedness. Many believers at times act as if they are slaves to their flesh and they therefore live for the things of the world and they waste their life in the prison of pleasure. It's just what we do. Isaiah is reminding us that fasting loosens those bonds of wickedness. The word loose means to unshackle or set free. Seasons of prayer and fasting will loosen the chains that enslaves the believer and will set them free to serve the Lord. Fasting will undo the heavy, heavy burdens. When the scripture is speaking of a yoke, that's what it's talking about a heavy burden we all deal with burdens there are many of them and they are oppressive webster says a burden is this that which is born or carried a load hence that which is born with labor or difficulty that which is grievous wearisome or oppressive burdens come in many forms and sizes don't they they can be health problems they can be financial burdens they can be family burdens when isaiah speaks of the yoke he's speaking of a heavy burden or oppression it is a burden that is too heavy to bear. They weigh us down. And if something is not done, we'll be crushed. And so it speaks of fasting as undoing these straps, which again is to loosen or shake off what it is saying is that fasting loosens us from our burdens that allows us to draw closer to God. Arthur Wallace writes this. Fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and importance into our praying and to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The man who prays with fasting is giving, giving heaven notice that he is truly in earnest. The purpose of fasting is to loosen to some degree the ties which bind us to the world of material things and our surroundings as a whole in order that we may consecrate all of our spiritual powers upon the unseen and eternal things. Fasting shows that we're serious about what we're praying for. The verse in Isaiah also says, to let the oppressed go free. The word oppressed in Hebrews is to be broken, bruised, crushed, or discouraged. It's an instrument under which the beast of burden labored. The oppressed are those who are broken and discouraged. There are multitudes in bondage who are broken and discouraged. 
We live in a, in a world where people are enslaved to all kinds of addictions and practices, oppressed by attitudes and drugs and friendships and sin and finances and jobs and even religion. All those things oppress people in Isaiah. It speaks of breaking every yoke that is powerful, the result of fasting. We all know people who are burdened and discouraged. In fact, they may be too broken and discouraged to fast for and pray for their situation. But you know something? We can actually fast and pray for them. Fasting sets the captives free. In our text, the Israelites went from feasting to fasting. They were letting go of the worldly need to draw close to God. Andrew Murray said this, prayer grasps the power of heaven, fasting loosens the hold on earthly pleasures fasting helps to express to deepen and to confirm the resolution that we're ready to sacrifice anything to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of god they came with empty stomachs but they had open hearts this is where fasting becomes real and it shows that we desire an answer to our prayer more than food that sustains our life. It says no to the desires of the flesh while seeking the priorities and the purposes of God in our life. Israel considered themselves poor before God. So poor that they, that they went without food. It's like saying we have no food. We are so troubled with our sin, God, that food seems unimportant to us. And that leads us to noticing their contrition. We're told that when they gathered, not only are they fasting, but they wear sackcloth and had earth on their heads. They were so sorrowful and shamed by their sin. This is humility on the part of God's people. Sackcloth was like this rough, coarse material. It was like putting on a burlap bag. And they're saying, we are so troubled by our sin that the normal comforts of life are not even important to us, God. However, if that's not enough, it says they had earth on their head. And so what they were doing is they would take handfuls of dirt and they would throw it on their heads. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you that the next time you come to church, come in a burlap bag with dirt all over your head. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that it reveals their humility. All this is an expression of, of mourning and humiliation for their sin. They had nothing to be proud of. They had come face to face with their sin and they realized that they stood naked before a just and holy God. And what I believe is crucial for us to realize is that every one of us should come for worship humbled before God and for far too often we come to worship with pride in our hearts failing to recognize that we are worshiping a holy God we should come humbly towards God and towards one another as we are told to consider others more important than ourselves they did this publicly for everyone to see they were humbling themselves in front of everyone when was the last time you humbled yourself publicly? I've found we have trouble even apologizing to a brother or sister in Christ for a bad attitude or a bad behavior, let alone publicly. 
We are so prideful. Let me be clear. I don't, I don't think that the majority of these people said, hey, there's no way I'm going to humiliate myself by throwing dirt on my head and putting on a burlap sack. And I, I don't think that the majority of them said, oh, I want to appear super spiritual, so I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. They were truly humble and repentant. Have you ever been so broken over your sin like this? Are you, are you even ever moved to tears by your sin in front of a holy God? When, are you moved to tears when we backbite and slander and gossip and lie and cheat? When we don't care for the poor, where we fail to be compassionate, when we're prideful and we're discontent and we're unthankful and we're selfish and we lack self-control and we're impatient and we're angry and we're judgmental and we're envious and, and we're just generally unchristlike, are you moved to actually mourning before a holy God? Are we so used to our sin that we just ignore it and we move on? Oh, Dear brothers and sisters, that we would be moved to tears in our worship of a holy God and our exceeding sinfulness. May our hearts be broken. May we truly be humbled and see ourselves for who we are and stop comparing ourselves to the man down the street or our neighbor or someone else in the church but instead that we would compare ourselves to a perfectly just a perfectly holy God who is perfect in every single way because he is our standard I love what A.W. Tozer said that worship is a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder. It is delightful to worship God, but it is also a humbling thing. Then the man who has not been humbled in the presence of God will never be a worshiper of God at all. He may be a church member who keeps the rules and obeys the discipline and who ties and goes to conference, but he'll never be a worshiper unless he is deeply Humbled, a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe. There's an awesomeness about God which is missing in our day altogether. There's little sense of admiring awe in the church these days. The Israelites realize their own depravity and deficiency before the Lord God, and they're humbled before God because they saw themselves as God saw them. Are you humbled in your worship of an almighty God? Does, he, does it humble you? Do, you? do you hear the proclamation of God's word? Do you sing songs and praise to God? And are you humbled at your sinfulness in front of a holy God? And, and do you realize that we are not worthy? The problem with our worship today is we think we are worthy. We think that we're worthy to step into the presence of a holy God. And we're not. Secondly, notice this. They worship 
with appropriate separation. Worship with appropriate separation. Now, we read this, we might be tempted to think, well, separation, we're, aren't we talking about corporate worship? Yes, we are, but look at verse 2. We read that the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and that's very significant. As they were looking into God's word, it revealed to them that they had sinned in their associations with the world, and so they separated themselves. God requires separation on the part of his people. They were to withdraw themselves from the pagan and unbelieving world around them. Now, I know we do not like to hear about separation today because the whole idea, uh, but that, that whole idea of separation comes from God. God told his people, the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel in Exodus eleven seven. I know the doctrine of separation is downplayed, it's ignored, and it's even ridiculed today. And it only goes to show how shallow our Christianity has become. God's people are not to be closely associated with the lost. We're to win the lost, but we are not to be like the lost. God's word is clear. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Proverbs 4.14 We have no legitimate excuse excuse for breaking his commands some will say if i want to win people to jesus then i need to be like them that's absurd some people will say well i need to be their close friend so i can help them that all sounds nice and it really sounds spiritual the problem is it doesn't work that way yes we want to help people Yes, we want to see people come to know Christ, but not at the expense of our relationship with the Lord. There is never a good reason to form a close alliance with the wicked. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. When we fail to hear God heal, heed God's commands of separation will reap serious consequences. Close friendships with the wicked is a dangerous place to be. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals, 1 Corinthians 15.33. Therefore, go out from amongst their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean, 2 Corinthians 6.17. Here's the thing. We so often think that we can handle it, right? That's what we say. Oh, we can handle it. We say things like, I won't give in to temptation. So we can go hang with the world. And we get a little of this, and we do a little of that, and the next thing we know, we're down the rabbit hole of sin. That's the way sin works. It has been said, if you lay down with the dogs, you will get up with fleas. There are many professing Christians today who are just like the wicked people that are around them because they have failed to separate themselves from ungodly people. Can I just encourage you to live a life of separation? Not in a spirit of arrogance, but in a spirit of dedication to the Lord. Not in a way that says I'll never take the gospel to the wicked, but in a way that says the wicked have nothing that I need or even want. Can I just encourage you this morning to live a life of separation, especially when it comes to worship, that you would just leave all of the cares and the garbage and the sinfulness of the world outside of your worship and that you would be fully focused on the Lord because he is worth it. That is part of our problem, isn't it? We come in to church sometimes. And to worship, but our mind is on the things of the world. We don't give God our all.
Thirdly, let's worship with acknowledgement of sin. Check out the last part of verse 2. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Remember back to chapter 1, when Nehemiah first heard about Judah's trouble, he confessed his sin and Israel's sin before the Lord. These people were deeply broken and they knew they had to get things right. When we have godly sorrow for sin, we'll repent. The people had to realize they had missed God's mark. That's what sin is. It's from the, from the English term, if you, if you did not hit a target in the right place, they would call out sin. It's an archer term. Miss the mark. We sin when we do what God has told us not to do. Telling us either in his word, in our conscience, or through legitimate authority. Or when we do not do what God has told us to do. Telling us in his word, in our conscience, or authority. Sin puts a wedge between the believer and God. God does not bless the wayward, nor does he reward wickedness. It is astonishing to me how we think that God is going to pour out his blessing on us when we have no desire to repent of our sin. You see, repentance is not just something that we do one time. So often we think, oh, well, I repented when I came to know Christ as my Savior. And we think it's a one-time thing, and we, then we no longer do it. Instead, repentance grows in our heart and our life as we grow closer and closer to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of the days and weeks, a temporary penance to be gotten over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. Alan Redpath said this, How often the discovery of something new in the lowliness of the Lord, Jesus has brought with it the discovery of some new corruption in our own hearts. God will never plant the seed of his life upon the soil of a hard, unbroken spirit. He will only plant that seed where the conviction of his spirit has brought brokenness, where the soil has been watered with the tears of repentance as well as the tears of joy. This humble gathering taking place just two days after the joyful celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. The closer they drew together, the more they saw their need of repentance. And the closer that God drew to them, revealing who he is and who they are. James Montgomery Boyce was asked once, Are we seeing a genuine religious revival? He answered, Whenever I have been asked that question, my answer has always been no. The reason I say no is quite simple. There is no national consciousness of sin. In fact, there is hardly any personal consciousness of sin. Very little in the churches and seemingly none at all in the world. And there has never been a revival without this essential element. It is tragic that we live in a day when there's a lack of preaching against sin. And therefore, people live in their sin. And it's just a way of life. People don't like to hear about their sin. They just don't. They like their ears tickled. God have mercy 
on the pastor who gives in to the desires of sinful people to hold on to his salary. Here in Nehemiah, there's a consciousness of sin and repentance. We may have acknowledgement of sin, but do you have a consciousness of your sin? And do you repent as you worship God? Next notice, worship with apparent seriousness. So we look at verse 3. We can see how serious they take the law of God. It's in their actions and attitudes. The Feast of Tabernacles is over. But what was done in their hearts was not over. Just because the church service ends does not mean that God's done working in the hearts of people. The goal is that God will continue to work in our life so we keep going forward and serving Him. If we come to church out of obligation and we're more concerned about the clock than the condition of our hearts, we will stagnate in our walk with Christ. Don't let your walk become so stale that you, that you come and, and read and maybe hear the word of God, but you don't really hear from God. Look at their determination. They spent the morning hours from sunrise until noon listening to the word of God. If, if we want to grow as a Christian, we must spend time in God's word. And then they spend another quarter of the day confessing their sins to God from noon until six. This is not some generic confession of sin. Like, Lord, forgive me of all my sin. It's real genuine confession. We must go to God and be serious about our confession. We should ask God to search our hearts. Lord, search my heart and point out any wickedness in my actions and in my attitudes. And we should ask him to reveal any apathy that we may have. Things we should be doing but we neglect to do. And then when those things are revealed, we repent of them knowing that God has power to change us. That the blood of Christ has already cleansed us. And as we, we should have the courage to walk in this way, serving him. Notice how their confession of sin came before their actual worship. With their sins confessed and forgiven, they feel like they can now properly worship God in the truest sense of the word. Their hearts are tender. Look at all these elements that are part of their worship. They're sincere. They focus on scripture. They practice separation from sin. They acknowledge their sin and confess it and praise God. Much of what we call worship today is so man-centered, it doesn't focus on any of these things. And sadly, we worship God in vain because of it. They were serious about their worship and obedience. Lastly, let's notice this. Worship adorning the sovereign. Worship adorning the sovereign. Deep in the hearts and minds of these people was this conviction. Which was motivated them to proper worship. The God of heaven is the sovereign God. He is the one true God. And the people were fully aware of this fact. The priests stood up and called the people's attention to this fact. And they enter into a time of worship 
and adoration. So three things quickly. First, the priests stood, right? The priests stood. We read that. The Levites were the people chosen to lead Israel in the worship of God. They were specifically from the tribe of Levi. And the priests came from the lineage of Aaron. They were handpicked by God to lead his people in worship and confession. We should not be surprised nor feel like failures if we have to be led in confession and repentance. These Levites stand up and they begin leading the people in what will be the longest prayer recorded in all of God's word. And the priority stated, the priest stood, the priority stated. The people had been kneeling or prostrate, confessing their sin, and now the Levites command them. Let me be clear, they are commanded, it's not a suggestion. Like, hey, if you want to stand up. The verb that is being used here is they implored the, the Lord their God and they command the people to stand and bless the Lord their God forever and ever. I love this idea of, of blessing the Lord. It's to praise Him and to honor Him. It is a priority to remember who God is and praise Him For all through the scripture, we're told to praise God. You realize that all through scripture. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Psalm 95, 6. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Blessed is his name. Psalm 100, verse 4. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent graceness. Praise him with trumpet sound and praise him with lute and harp. Psalm 151 through 3. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150 verse 6. If God has not been praised, then he's not been worshipped. Praising and worshipping God is the most important thing that a human being can be involved in. However, there's a large difference between worshiping God and simply going to church. In fact, real shocker, not everyone who attends church spends time actually worshiping God. Now stop and think about this. As believers, we get to worship the true God of heaven. We get to worship the true God of heaven. And I was, this hit me yesterday because I'm, I'm running at 7.45 in the morning. And I run by the kingdom hall down there. And the place is packed. I thought, you know who those people, they're, they're worshiping a false god. And my heart is saddened. Because the place was packed so early in the morning. And I thought, man, how hard does it seem for us just to get people together and worship the one true God. The one true God of heaven that is sovereign over everything. That that all false gods pale in comparison to. We can't even hardly get people together to worship him. And I drive by there and they're worshiping a false god and the place is packed. There are many gods. But there's only one God. 
Many gods, little g, but there is only one God. After crossing the Red Sea, the children of Israel sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness and awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Exodus 15-11. Church, there is no one like the God of the Bible. His excellence is supreme. His exploits are praiseworthy his holiness his character and his power magnify him far above and beyond every single false god of this world he has no equal his supremacy reigns he is the god of glory oh that we would praise him lastly let's see this the praise was shouted Look at the last part of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They're now praising the greatness of God. They were to praise His glorious name. The name of God represents His fame and His glory. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, may the name of the Lord be praised. Psalm 113, 1-3. This is a call of genuine spirit-filled praise. This praise should continually flow from the hearts of God's people. Our God is worthy to be praised over and over and over again. Our attention is drawn to His name. Oh, that you and I would praise God. <coughs> Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, First Chronicles 16.10. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. 1 Chronicles 16.29 Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 29.2 Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Psalm 34.3 Blessed be His glorious name forevermore. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 72.19 It is good to give thanks to the Lord to sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 92.1 Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Psalm 96.8 Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 105.3 Before the people praise God for His blessing, they praise Him for who He is. It is wonderful to receive blessings from the Lord Church. I love it. You love it. We all love to receive His blessing. But if we rejoice in the blessing, we're missing the point. Because it's not the blessing we rejoice in. But it's God. It's God Himself. Which is the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is nothing, nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. Can you say that this morning? 
There's nothing. Nothing on this earth, God, that I desire but you. Isn't that really what's wrong with our worship? We desire so much, but God. God, I'm going to do it my way. I choose how I worship you, God. I'll go to church when I want to go to church. I'll listen to whatever sermon I want to listen to. I'll do things my way, God. God, I need more of this. I need more of that. And in our heart, church, in reality, so often in our heart we come in here and we sing praises and, oh, it's got to be my way. If it ain't a hymn, I ain't singing it. It's not a praise chorus. I'm not going to sing it. We do not define how God is worshipped. He does. Oh, that we would desire nothing. We would realize this earth has nothing. We should desire nothing besides him. In the book, Your Father Loves You by J.R. Packer, he writes about worship. He writes this. To worship God is to recognize worth or worthiness, to look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God or giving glory to God and views it as the ultimate end and from one point of view, the whole duty of man. Scripture views the glorifying of God as a sixfold activity, praising God for all that he is and all his achievements, thanking him for, for all his gifts and his goodness to us, asking him to meet our own and others' needs, offering him our gifts and our service and ourselves, learning of him from his word, read and preached and obeying his voice, telling others of his worth both by public confession and testimony to what he's done for us. Thus, we might say that the basic formulas of worship are these. Lord, you're wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord. Take this, Lord. Yes, Lord. Listen up, everybody. This, then, is worship in its largest sense. Petition as well as praise. Preaching as well as prayer. Hearing as well as speaking. Actions as well as words. Obeying as well as offering. Loving people as well as loving God. However, the primary acts of worship are those which focus on God directly. And we must not imagine that the work for God in the world is a substitute for direct fellowship with God in praise and prayer and devotion. He is 
worthy of our worship. So I ask you this morning, do you come in here on Sunday morning or whenever it might be, or do you enter into your time of worship with authentic sincerity? Do you worship with acknowledgement and separation of sin? Are you serious about your worship? And do you worship adorning the sovereign, understanding that he indeed is worthy and he should get all of our praise? Speak his praise, church. Sing his praise, church. Preach his praise. Praise church, not because of his blessing, but because of who he is. In Luke chapter 19, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And as he draws near, he's coming down the Mount of Olives. And it says, the whole multitude of people and his disciples began to rejoice him. And praise God with a loud voice, it says, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they're silent, these very stones will cry out. Oh, church, may the praise of Jesus ever be on our lips today because he is worthy of all of it. Let's close with prayer.